Star Trek and the Jews supports the Black Lives Matter movement and opposes anti-Black racism, particularly police brutality. Please donate to an organization working to dismantle systems of anti-Black oppression. We will include a link to give to various organizations and join us in donating. Listen up. If you are a white Jew, recognize that you benefit from white privilege. Take note of the community spaces you belong to and support Black members. This includes Black Jews. Anti-Semitism isn't gone. But if you're a white Jew living in North America, it's likely that your Jewishness doesn't impact your access to education, employment, housing, or engagement with law enforcement. So join us in taking note of our privilege. Work to be an ally to Black communities, including Black Jews. I think my first memory of it was in the North Russell Street show, which was orthodox. We only knew orthodoxy at the time. There was no reform or, or conservative movement yet. There was a conservative movement starting, but we didn't have it in my neighborhood. And uh, so I'm with my father and my grandfather and my brother sitting in the, the bench seats. Women were upstairs. and. Uh, there comes a point where these, my memory was that maybe five or six guys get up on the bema on the stage and they're facing the congregation. They get their talit over their heads and they start this chanting. I think it's called dukening. And uh, my father said to me, don't look. So everybody's got their their eyes covered with their hands, or they've got their talit down over their faces, or turned away, turned their back to these guys. And I hear this strange sound coming from them. They're not singers. They were shouters and dissonant. It was all discordant. And they were doing like, that kind of wailing, and all discordant, not together, not in unison. And then the leader would shout out, and the rest of them would respond, it was chilling, you know, <laughs> whoa, something, something major is happening here. So I peeked, and I saw them with their hands stuck out from beneath their talit like this towards the congregation. I thought, wow. Something really got hold of me. I thought, this is a... I had no idea what was going on, but the sound of it and the look of it was magical. So I learned how to do it. I don't know. I just thought, well, that's an interesting thing to be able to do that. And I, it came fairly easily. I learned how to do it. So much later, uh, I learned that uh, this is the shape of the letter Shin, Hebrew alphabet Shin. Very interesting letter in the, in the language. It's the first letter in the word Shaddai, the first letter in the word Shalom, first letter in the word Shekhinah, which is the name of the feminine aspect of God, who supposedly was created to live amongst humans, the Shekhinah. And uh, why you're not supposed to look came to me much, much later, much later. Uh, 
My wife Susan has a cousin who's a rabbi here in Los Angeles at Temple Israel. And I was telling him this story and he said the reason you don't look is the, the legend is that during that benediction, uh, the Shekhinah comes into the sanctuary to bless the congregation. And you don't want to see that because it's so powerful, it could, it could really get, be seriously injured or it could be fatal. So that's why you protect yourself by hiding in your eyes. Don't look. I survived. <laughs> I never dreamed that I would do that someday or be involved in it in some way. But sure enough, one day we're making the Star Trek series, television series, and uh, we come to a, a very lovely script called A Mock Time, where my character, Spock, who comes from the Vulcan planet, has to go home to fulfill a marriage betrothal, to be married. And the lady who's going to uh, conduct the service is a, a lady named Chapao, played by a wonderful Viennese, Jewish Viennese actress named Celia Lofsky. And uh, I'm, I'm supposed to meet her when we arrive at the planet, and uh, we exchanged hellos. And I thought we should, I was looking for anything. It was the first time we we're seeing other Balkans, other people of my race. So I was hoping to find some touches that could develop the story of the Balkan sociology, history, whatever, ritual. So I said to the director, I think we should have some special greeting that Balkans do. Because we, he said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, humans, we, we have these rituals, that we, the things that we do. Um, we shake hands, we, we nod to each other, we bow to each other, we salute each other. What do Vulcans do? So I suggested this. He said, okay. And that's how we, we did it as a greeting, a Vulcan greeting. Uh, boy, that just took off through the culture. It was amazing. Within days after it was on the air, I was getting it on the street. People doing this to me, waving to me in this Vulcan gesture, that, that's interesting. And it's been that way to this day. It's almost 50 years later, people are still doing it. You know? Welcome to Star Trek and the Jews, the monthly podcast that uses Star Trek to boldly explore the worlds of Jews and Judaism. Today, we're talking about Spock, his Jewishness and his connection to us. We're also talking about Leonard Nimoy and what he brought to Star Trek and his Jewishness. Throughout this episode, we're going to be using clips like the one you just heard, that's Leonard Nimoy speaking in 2013 in an interview with the Yiddish Book Center's Wexler Oral History Project, an interview conducted by Krista Whitney. The entire two-hour interview is available at YiddishBookCenter.org, and I really suggest you check it out. Uh, Leonard talks about some amazing things, growing up in Boston in a Jewish and Italian working-class neighborhood, his family, uh, how they immigrated to America, and even meeting his own distant relatives still living in the Soviet Union his involvement in B'nai B'rith and his local synagogue and how those led him into acting and his experiences in the Yiddish theater scene. It's really an incredible interview. And please, if you're interested, go ahead and listen to the whole two-hour interview. And you get to listen to Leonard Nimoy speak Yiddish, which I thought was wonderful. <laughs> we lost Leonard February 27, 2015 to COPD. This episode, first and foremost, is about the Jewishness of Spock. But since Leonard is in many ways at the center of that Jewishness, we also want to learn directly from him. That's why we'll be cutting back to clips from his interview throughout the episode. So, Chava? Yes. We watched three episodes for our Hebrew school homework today. 
We did. I mocked time, Journey to Babel, and Yesteryear. Mm-hmm. So the last couple episodes, we've had a few stinkers. <laughs> <laughs> Sub Rosa comes to mind. Yeah. Sub what Rosa did you think does. of these three? I think four original series episodes, they weren't that bad. I know that that's possibly an unpopular opinion, but I just generally don't love watching the original series. I'll be honest. Yeah. Uh, but I actually really did like uh, Amok Time. I thought that was really interesting to see the whole, the origins of the Ponfar and just watching Spock go through that, that whole experience was pretty hilarious. What did you think, Josh? I love these episodes. I'm um, sorry. That's <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, I think Journey to Babel's probably the weakest of them. Amok Time to me, this is like, I watched this episode and I remember why I love the original series so much. <laughs> um, there's there's so much in it that speaks to me. First of all, like Leonard Nimoy just has the most incredible performance in it. Like that scene at the beginning where where he's holding back tension and Kirk notices the knife behind his back and Spock is like disgusted with himself. This was like a really cool episode. It was the season premiere for season two. And I think the show had kind of grown. Walter Koenig shows up for the first time as Chekhov uh, and they wanted him to have hair like the monkeys, but he hadn't grown it out yet. So that's why he's wearing that like awful floppy wig. This episode also spawned like an entire genre of fiction. <laughs> which is slash fiction, and it is spawned by the intense sexual tension between Kirk and Spock. Like, we would not be the first to point out that Spock has the urge to either mate or die, but then after he rolls around in the dirt with Kirk for a while, he's he's all good. <laughs> okay, um, well, now you've changed my mind. Now I really <laughs> like this episode. <laughs> and in fact, the term slash fiction originally comes from, like, erotic fiction written about Kirk and Spock, like as in Kirk slash Spock. Um, and then from there, like slash that was used to designate which characters were involved in like the ship in a particular story. So this is like a really iconic thing. And I don't know, there's just like so much world building in this. I think it's the first time we really got backstory on a character, see their home, the relationships have evolved, like Chapel showing her interest in Spock. There's like, even in the background, some galacto-political stuff with like needing to counter the Klingons at Altair. So I I really, I love this episode. This this one really does it for me. I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> I think watching it as like someone who's just coming in for this episode, basically, I should have, I should have situated myself in the context a bit better because I think I would maybe have got some of the great things that you got from the episode. <laughs> Journey to Babel, I think we'll probably come back to a lot when we're talking about like logic versus emotion. But mm -hmm. I mean, it's a bit clunky. The whole whodunit doesn't really work for me. But I love a good Star Trek fight, you know, bouncing off the wall, double handed punches in the back. <laughs> the makeup is so awful, too. Like who in particular? Like the Tellarites where you can like see the mask lines all around them and see the inside of the mask oh, through their yeah. eye holes. That's true. I forgot. Yeah. No, I just thought that they were intending to look like masked animals. <laughs> well, sure. That could be our headcanon. But then they even sort of, I don't know how intentional it is, but they kind of play on the idea of bad alien makeup because the Andorian antenna falls apart and it contains an actual transmitting antenna. <laughs> uh, sort of a, a hat on a hat there. That was a fun one, too. 
Um, and of course, this episode introduced us to Sarek and Amanda, two like really iconic characters. Uh, Amok Time also introduces us to Tapau, a character who shows up a few times in Enterprise and also like a holographic version of her in Voyager. What do you think of Yesteryear? I had never watched the uh, animated series before, so I really liked that. Adam, I think, actually kind of grounded me before watching it. He was like, this is what it's like to watch television that's like comic book style from the 70s. Do you like, mean okay. Dr. Adam? Yeah, Dr. Adam, sorry. I did actually like it quite a bit. And I thought it, it showed something interesting about Spock with his pet that really hit me hard as a dog owner. Yeah. So I really, I really liked that, actually. And it just really showed him as an emotional being and kind of his coming into who he is, like how he kind of decided to be the way he is. There's a lot to love about that episode. If anyone's listening and has never seen the animated series, I think Yesteryear is the episode to start with. It's written by DC Fontana, who wrote Journey to Babel. She's not credited on Amok Time, but she was the story editor and like very responsible for a lot of the, the things that went into Spock's backstory. And it really feels like a true original series episode with like ethical dilemmas and and like a complicated sci-fi mechanic pretty amazing that they kill the animal i know i could not believe that i was like this is not for children i'm sad this I aired at cry. like 10 o'clock in the morning on a saturday in the middle of cartoons about superheroes should not be for children i disagree <laughs> well i think that they took an approach of like this is a hard lesson for kids but it's done in a manner that like a kid could understand you're right that is the healthy way of looking at it and definitely is a healthy experience for most children but i still have not learned that lesson so i will continue to be very upset whenever animals die in anything i think that this episode has been a favorite of a lot of people who went on to create later trek the animated series was like notably ignored by many future uh, Trek writers and was sort of like not thought of as canon by most of the like fan and production community until the early 2000s, perfectly coinciding with when Paramount released them on DVD. But that's neither here nor there. But this episode gets a lot of callbacks. So like the city of Shikar is mentioned in, in many other places, but also J.J. Abrams' 2009 Star Trek I think draws a lot from this. Like it, it has a scene where Spock picks a fight with some Vulcan bullies making fun of his human mother. And, you know, Sarek having to sit him down and tell him that he'll always be a child of two worlds. I, I think this is a really powerful episode for that. Yeah, definitely. The Kazwan is one hell of a bar mitzvah. Yeah. It's slightly less awful than having to stand up in front of all of your friends and family at an age when you're in like peak awkwardness and chant for 15 minutes in a language you don't understand while your voice is cracking and then give a speech about it. <laughs> it's true. That's definitely worse. Did, did uh, you have a bat mitzvah? I know. Not like what you're describing because, uh, because I grew up in a religious community. Women are not supposed to be heard singing. So as a 12 year old or a 13 year old, I did not have, uh, like public bat mitzvah that way. There are actually movements to have, like, women give a bat mitzvah with other women and read from the Torah. And my mom pushed me to do that, but I didn't do it and I kind of regret it. But no, so I did not. So I don't have that trauma that so, clearly is present for everyone else who has had to do that. But thankfully, everyone does it. So doesn't that make you feel a little bit better? <laughs> yeah, 
My bar mitzvah was, um, it was a weekday Rosh Chodesh Hanukkah. So like there was Torah reading, but I, I never did like Haftarah. It's a really hard Torah reading to give a Devar on because it's like a list of things that you have to take to the tabernacle on a specific date. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like a point form Parsha. Josh, um, well, tell us the list. What are some of the things? Um, there were some metals and some animals and I don't know, it was like 19 years ago. <laughs> And my voice did crack. And because it's a weekday, they were allowed to film. So my voice cracking is on video. Nice. I hope Leah's seen it. And I hope I get to see it one day too. (laughs) Hey, Josh. Yeah? Can we talk about the Vulcan salute? Yes. So we listened to Leonard Nimoy give us his explanation of where he came up with it. It really resonated with me because I have felt that exact like awe of what is going on when... um, the Birkat Kohanim is happening. So this is like the priestly blessing that happens on certain holidays. Um, and this is where the classist behavior of Jewish people comes out. Those that are descended from the priests of the temple, the Kohens, get up at the front of the congregation and they do a blessing. And that's what uh, Leonard Nimoy was talking about. Um, and while they're doing this blessing, they're holding up their hands in uh, the Vulcan salute. As a child in an Orthodox community, you like go and you st- hide under your dad's talit, like his prayer shawl, while they're doing this this chant. I just, I really, I heard him talking about it. It was like, that's exactly how it felt. Like, you feel like, oh, this is such an intense thing, and I shouldn't look, and I don't know what to do. And like, even the smell of my dad's talit, like, came right back into my mind when he was talking about that. Because like, I mean, it's not exactly a flowers um, <laughs> to be <laughs> under there, but it, it's such like a moment that is really emphasized in the in the Jewish prayers. Eventually, I also looked and saw the hands, and it is it's a little bit shocking to see. It just looks so r- ritualistic. I mean, everything's ritualistic. I I really liked listening to him talk about that. It really it really made me kind of have a flashback. Wow. Let me ask you this, because I've heard you express some strong opinions about it in the past. How do you feel about the fact that this Jewish symbol has become a Star Trek symbol? So we actually did discuss this quite a bit when we were trying to think of a logo for our podcast. And it's like the natural choice because it's so Jewish and it's so it's so Star Trek. But as a child, I remember feeling exactly how Leonard Nimoy felt where I was told if I looked, it could cause death. And it was like that, that level of importance to not look at the, uh, the priestly blessing happening. And it was very much a, we couldn't see the hands. That's supposed to be like a, a secret kind of symbol that only they do. And it's supposed to be like a, they're supposed to be forming like windows with their hands to like look through at the congregation. Um, and so I was pretty against us using this symbol, which is a bit ironic because it's like the symbol of Star Trek and this is about Star Trek. But I kind of think that it's actually in poor taste that it was used. But I will say that I really like how it's used, that it's like a symbol of peace. And it's almost like the emotional symbol of Vulcans, which I really like about it. And so if it's going to be used, at least it's used for that. To borrow a phrase, fascinating. Spock is an alien wherever he is. 
because he's not Vulcan and he's not human. He's half and half. He's a half-breed, what we used to call a half-breed, a mixed breed. Vulcan father, human mother. So he's not totally at home in the Vulcan culture, not totally accepted in the Vulcan culture because he's not totally Vulcan, certainly not totally accepted in the human culture because he's, he's part Vulcan. And that alienation was something that I had learned in Boston. I knew what it meant to be a member of a, of a minority, and in some cases, an outcast minority. So I understood that. I understood that aspect of the character, and I think it was helpful in playing it. Josh, what do you think about Spock as an outsider? Yeah, Spock's definitely an outsider. I mean, Amanda says it uh, It hasn't been easy on Spock. This is in Journey to Babel. Neither human nor Vulcan, at home nowhere except Starfleet. We see it in the, in the scene uh, from the children in yesteryear uh, that's basically repeated in the 2009 film. I think the, the other question is, like, are Jews outsiders? Yeah, I think definitely sometimes. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, our identity is crystallized by exile. So that could be like the literal exiles of, you know, Judaism being reformed in Babylon, the early rabbinic period under oppressive Roman rule. But also our founding story, the Exodus, is about, like the Tanakh says, like being a stranger in a strange land. Mm -hmm. And I think like we as North American Jews, our histories are really shaped by oppression. My family came here to escape pogroms. Your family came here in the aftermath of the Holocaust. And like our identities are, I think, are really shaped by that. Definitely. Yeah. But it's not unique to Jews. And I think that's part of the universal appeal of Spock is that like almost everyone has felt like an outsider at some point in their life. Mm -hmm. um, and Spock makes the outsider feel like they're important and valued and like central to the story. Yeah. I mean, he's like the voice of reason character that you can't live without. So, mm -hmm. uh, definitely super important, despite him being an outsider. Yeah. I thought a little bit about if the role of the Jew as the outsider is fading. And you know what? If we'd been recording this in like 2008, I might have said yes. But I don't know. I think one of the shocking awakenings of the Trump era is that in the eyes of of many white supremacists, for example, we're, we're the outsider, like Charlottesville, Squirrel Hill, Poway, mm -hmm. make, make us feel like outsiders. And I also feel like a certain brand of white supremacist anti-Semitism has been normalized again in very recent years, like really in the last four years. Definitely. Yeah. In a way that feels scary. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely definitely scary. Just recently, actually, there was like a someone ransacked a synagogue in Montreal, and they actually shredded the Torah. And they were trying to flush it down the toilet. And I just found that so horrifying that that's something that's happening in 2020. As time goes on, because of the ultra orthodox community, at least this is my opinion, I feel that Jews will always be outsiders from that perspective because they're intending to be outsiders. Like they want to be secluded from the rest of society. And if we're like associated with those communities in some way, because anti-Semitism to them is the same anti-Semitism that would be felt by um, a more secular Jewish person. Mm -hmm. um, 
I think that will make it so that until they are accepted, I feel that we're not really accepted. And that will kind of push, push us in the direction of not blending in. Yeah. Um, And like decidedly so from our own perspective, like I don't want to blend in because I don't feel like it's fair, that kind of opinion. What do you think? As an adult, I control the spaces that I'm in. And it's not to say that I'm only in Jewish spaces, but but I'm able to find Jewish community when I'm looking for it. But when I became a Trekkie, I was a kid. And as a kid, uh, your Jewishness sort of does isolate you in lots of weird ways, unless you're in a very heavily Jewish space like day school. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember being in grade two and getting upset and wanting to leave the room because I didn't want to listen to a story about Jesus. I remember being one of only three Jews in my entire middle school and having a young kid very, very well-intentioned with no hatred or malice in her, in her asking me if I had horns. <laughs> and Sorry, shouldn't have laughed. That's no, yeah. I mean, it, it is funny. Yeah. Um, I remember there, there's a woman I know, she's an incredibly talented human rights lawyer today. And she was probably like 11 years old and told me that I was the only Jewish person I'd ever met. And she knew so many people who hated us. I was always moved by how, like, she as an 11 year old already recognized this as bad and was like coming to me as an ally but yeah i felt like as a, an outsider as a as a jew especially especially in grade 7 and 8 i think that that i really latched on to spock at that age also and there's probably a close tie between them wow that's that's really interesting i don't have the experience of being uh until like college and university i don't have the experience of being a secluded jew in a community that is not jewish so, Let's be honest, Kava, you didn't meet any Gentiles until first year university. <laughs> yeah, no, that's not true. Um, <laughs> that's definitely not true. But it's not far from true. Yeah, I mean, I was raised in a secluded society. So I've never like experienced anti-Semitism that you're describing like this kind of passive that way. So as Jews, we're often seen as outsiders. And I just thought it was kind of interesting that something that really distinguished uh, Vulcans is their sexual practices. So the Ponfar is obviously a fairly unusual ritual with all the bells and the gongs and like a physical fight in order to mate. And I do think that actually Jewish people do have some strange customs around mating as well. And I thought that that was kind of interesting that um, this is something that they've chosen to uh, emphasize. Sometimes I feel very icky talking about some of the Jewish customs surrounding sex because most people don't know about it unless they're like part of the community, obviously. And I feel similarly about it the way Spock kind of felt about the Ponfar, where he doesn't really want to talk about it and he sees it as kind of like a stain in certain ways. So to me, like the fact that we have to, like a woman has to be bathed in a ritual bath before she can have sex with her husband because she's impure because of a natural cycle menstruation. To me, that is such an icky idea or it's just like so sexist and like something I'm not proud of that's part of our community. And I felt like there are just a few other strange things 
in uh, Jewish sects that sort of make me feel similarly to uh, how Spock feels about the Ponfar and how it seems like all Vulcans feel about the Ponfar. <laughs> Nobody seems into it. It's funny you say that. My wife, Leah, and I, we watched Unorthodox, which I didn't actually really like that much. I thought the the Brooklyn stuff was really interesting, but the Germany part was like really cliche and a little bit dull. But my wife said to me, and like, we're liberal Jews and the the, the laws of Nida and Nagia are not a part of our lives. Um, but she said to me, like, I'm so glad that I'm working from home right now so that I don't have to explain to everybody at work what these things are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. The, that that show really did show and shine a light on all of the strange uh, sexual practices of Jewish people. Um, yeah, and with the, with the mikvah, that was so... Uh, I hated that scene. It was just, like, so inappropriate and they did not have to show... They showed her breasts and they just, it was just unnecessary and also kind of offensive as well, because like, that's supposed to be a very private type of experience for Jewish women. I was really surprised they did that, especially in light of, you know, there's an ongoing situation where uh, a rabbi at a modern Orthodox synagogue in Washington, D.C. was surreptitiously recording women using the mikvah, which is like an enormously painful violation of you know, not just sexual assault, but but also like like such a spiritual attack. Um, and so like the fact that they showed her nude in those scenes, yeah, was like really uncomfortable. And I'm not a person who's normally like squeamish about nudity whatsoever, but it, mm. it, it felt really unnecessary there. Same. I had the exact same experience. I was like, why? There's no reason and it's offensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I have explained some of the strange things that we do. Like my least favorite one, and I'm going to talk about it, is the fact that some rabbis uh, actually take in, um, you can actually send a piece of cloth with some of your menstrual blood on it to a rabbi to have it confirmed that you are no longer menstruating and that you're now like done your uh, five days of menstruation or whatever. And like you can do it anonymously and then just leave a phone number or something. I don't know. To me, that's just insane. That that's something that people actually do. Maybe that sounds judgmental, but whatever. I'm judging my own people, so I'm allowed. Tapau says in Amok Time, uh, what they are about to see comes down from the time of the beginning without change. And uh, first of all, like, hey, the Vulcans have a received oral tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also made me think about how like, even though Vulcans have undergone this incredible transformation, and, and I think the time of the beginning predates the Surak revolution, where they shed their violent and emotional past and embraced logic. And it, it made me think, too, of how the early rabbis, yes, they frame it as they're no longer able to make temple sacrifices, and that's why they replace sacrifices with study of Torah, tefillah, which is prayer, and chesed, acts of loving kindness. But I think that that strain was was already going. That evolution was underway. But but those rituals from the time of the beginning, they stay with us just like they do for the Vulcans. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's a great connection. 
A couple episodes ago, we had Aaron Rotenberg on the show, and he talked about how one of the, you know, the most comfortable modes for the rabbis to talk about virtue in is that of chachma, wisdom. And Spock certainly is a chacham, a, a man of, of great wisdom. So I thought we would play a little game. Oh, can't wait. Yeah. This game is called Spock or Torah. <laughs> I and told Adam give... about this and he could not, could not <laughs> deal with it. Okay, so I'm going to give you a quote mm-hmm. and you are going to tell me if it's Spock or Torah. And let's set some parameters here. So um, I'm. it's all of uh, Tanakh and Talmud, but I didn't use any like rabbinic literature. And it's canonical Spock, so series and films. And I only chose from Leonard Nimoy, Spock, uh, no Zachary Quinto or Ethan Peck thrown in. Okay, you ready, Chava? I am ready. Silence is fitting for wise people, and the same is true for fools. Um, Spock or Torah? I think I'm going to go with Spock. Oh, sorry. This is from the Babylonian Talmud, Pesachim 99a. In what context? Uh, I don't have the deaf in front of me. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. I accept. Okay, round two. Round two. Ready. Insufficient facts always invite danger. Okay, that does sound like Spock. That is Spock in Space Seed, the episode that introduced us to one Khan Noonien Singh. Okay, round three. Change is the essential process of all existence. That doesn't sound very Jewish. Um, but I still feel like it might be... Spock or Torah, Chava? Spock. Spock it is. That's from the original series episode, Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. That's the one where one of them is black on the left and one of them is black on the right. You know which one I mean. (laughs) Round four. One whose deeds exceed his wisdom, his wisdom endures. But one whose wisdom exceeds his deeds, his wisdom does not endure. That sounds like Torah. Yeah, that's Pirkei Avo, the ethics of our fathers, or sayings from our dad. Whichever way you want to do it. Chapter three. (laughs) Yeah, that's nice. I like that. Wisdom affords strength to the wise, more than 10 rulers who were in the city. Torah? Torah, that's from Kohelet. Okay, finally. Logic and knowledge are not enough. Each of us at some point in our life turns to another, a father, a brother, a god, and asks, why am I here? What was I meant to be? Uh, is that Torah? Oh, that is Spock. I'm shocked in Star that's Trek: Spock. The Motion Picture. <laughs> okay. The best and most boring Star Trek movie. <laughs> it can be both those things. Let's talk about the conflict that Spock has between logic and emotion. I think that we can frame this in a conversation that Spock has in Star Trek VI uh, that has a, a real Jewish element to it. So I'm going to play that for us now. I do not understand this representation. This is a depiction from ancient Earth mythology. The expulsion from paradise. 
Why keep it in your quarters? It is a reminder to me that all things end. It is of endings that I wish to speak. Sir, I address you as a kindred intellect. Do you not recognize that a turning point has been reached in the affairs of the Federation? History is replete with turning points, Lieutenant. You must have faith. Faith? That the universe will unfold as it should. But is that logical? Surely we must. Logic, logic, logic. Logic is the beginning of wisdom, Polaris, not the end. So do you think there's anything Jewish in this? I'm not sure. What do you think? I guess I'm sort of of two minds. Like, there is something about it that, like, feels Jewish, but I'm not really sure what's there. I worry in my head that there's this, like, stereotype of Judaism as overly legalistic. And that stereotype has come from lots of different places. So it's like a Christian critique of Judaism, but it was also a Hasidic critique of the Mitnagdim, which were like the the opposers of their sort of spiritual revival movement that created Hasidism. And it was also a critique from the early reform movement of what we would now call orthodoxy, but didn't have a name at the time. But I'm not sure if it holds up. Like halakha, Jewish law, definitely operates on a system of logic, and one can take a lifetime to master that logic and and learn how to advance it. And so, like people who are really engaged in like a yeshiva process of like formal Jewish education, you know, they might draw from it certain logic based approaches to life. But I wonder how much of that is actually because like the more emotional aspects of Judaism are harder to grasp and harder to understand. Like I think Judaism places way more emphasis on on chesed, acts of loving kindness than on I guess like legalistic compliance with regulations and yet it's like really hard to go like study how to be loving and kind. Mhm. I think that's true to a certain extent, but I also think that following the laws is a given. It's like yeah, obviously you're following the laws because like that's your way of life. But what's like really makes you a good person is then the the non-law things like doing chesed. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I also think that the Judaism is legalistic, but it almost seems a little bit like there is an emotion that is felt. And then we try to logic our way to that conclusion from the Torah. Um, I don't know if that's Maybe that's a bit unfair, but um, like we don't want to stone adulterers, so we kind of logic our way out of that one using the Torah against like the its own words. You know, there are two species in Star Trek that are driven by pure logic: the Vulcans and the Borg. <laughs> but the yeah. difference is that the Vulcans, the Vulcans, ascribe to like this. Aristotelian ideal of truth and beauty. And so, like, their logic is in pursuit of the ethical good. Mm-hmm. I think about the, the logic of the rabbis. They'll take a passage, 
like an eye for an eye, which comes like right out of the Tanakh. And then the rabbis will say, well, the Torah obviously cannot mean if one person blinds another, you have to blind the attacker because you're not allowed to kill people. And there's a possibility that if you take out an eye, you might accidentally kill them. Plus, not all eyes are the same. What do you do if the victim had great eyesight, but the attacker had poor sight? And so the rabbis are like, ah, so of course, this must have meant you need to make monetary compensation equivalent to that of an eye. The damages, the same, <laughs> the same principle that we use in our justice system today. And notably, like the rabbis bring about like one of the only legal systems where damages are applied universally. So like, it doesn't matter if you attack like a noble or a peasant or a rich person or a poor person, the, the monetary damages are the same. There's like a rule of law applied to it, which is also like a very ethical principle. It's logic with a purpose. And I think that like the rabbis, Vulcan's have a tendency to like use logic to get them to where they want to go. Yeah, definitely. Totally see that. I also think that logic versus emotion kind of draws back to Spock as the outsider. Like it's not just the actual philosophies at play, but like the fact that he is drawn in two directions that he's, you know, kneeling before the priestess on Mount Salea about to accept uh, Kolinar for himself, but like he feels the call from afar of Earth in danger from V'ger, his friends in danger, and like he can't abandon that. Um, and so it, it's not just like about logic versus emotion; it's about the central tension that that makes Spock interesting and and a character we can empathize with and love. Mm -hmm. Totally agree. In Journey to Babel, I really thought that we saw some of. Almost like Spock's logic getting the better of him. Because mm. um, it really seemed like he was totally not following what seemed to be the logical course of action. Put Scotty in charge. Yeah, exactly. Like, he could have definitely put someone else in charge. That was his opinion, that he had to be in charge. Whereas it was fact that his father would die without his blood donation. That seemed very emotional. Just interesting that he was really trying to work the logic as his excuse for his behavior as basically rebelling against his dad. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. What do you think about that? I, th I think I agree with you. So Josh, is there a chance that Spock is actually canonically Jewish? I mean, anyone could be. Um, before we dive into that, let's listen to this clip of Leonard Nimoy talking about uh, some of his own Jewish identity. I, I was exposed to a from life. And uh, I, I didn't consider myself a terribly religious person. I didn't think about God a lot. But socially and, and uh, ethically, we were, we were very concerned with religion and the culture. Uh, the shul that we, that we went to where I was first bar mitzvah was only three doors from our house. You could step out the front door and walk three doors and be into the synagogue. Uh, the Hebrew school that I went to was only about a block away. After school, for years, I was bored because I didn't understand what was going on, except that I had to memorize. It was all about memorization. Unfortunately, 
there was not a lot of discussion about content or, or interpretation. It was just memorization. Learn this, learn that. Say this, say that. And um, I guess I was a successful um, bar mitzvah because I was asked to perform the, the, my, my bar mitzvah um, performance at, at a second show. So I did, did it one week at one show and one week at, the next week at another show. <laughs> But I, I, I remember the first, in the first show, it was very touching. Caught me totally by surprise when I was finished. There was a rain of small bags of candies and raisins and nuts. Evidently, my mother and grandmother in the balcony with the women had handed out these little bags, these little little brown paper bags filled with candies and nuts. And when, the, when I was done with, with my my responsibilities, all these women would throwing the stuff down at me. It was kind of a rain of, of goodies. <laughs> Tradition at the time. There was a man named Bass who had a beauty shop, a fairly successful beauty parlor in the neighborhood on the same street, Chambers Street. And he was a clarinet player with a Klezmer orchestra. And uh, I used to love to listen to them play. They played in the show mostly. I mean, that's what he did as a as sort of a hobby. Anytime there was an event at the show, he and his guys would, would play some klezmer music. And I, I used to love to hear that. And I sang in choirs when I was probably 11, 12, 13 years old. I sang in choirs for the high holidays. I want to make an argument that like maybe, just maybe, Spock is a little bit Jewish. And I'm not meaning coded Jewish or Jewish influences that like Spock, the character, is a Jew. Got it. Okay, so here's what I've got. He definitely has an affinity for the Jewish story. So in Star Trek VI, he hangs a Marc Chagall painting, and Marc Chagall is like an iconic Jewish artist. Uh, The painting is The Expulsion of Paradise, uh, and we played a a clip talking a little bit about that. He makes a much deeper cut in the episode The Gamesters of Triskelion, where he makes a bit of an allusion to the Book of Daniel. But I wouldn't draw too much from these, because Spock shows general knowledge of ancient mythology and lots of, you know, ancient earth literature. He makes references to the texts of other human religions. And also, you know, Kirk and McCoy similarly share his like fluency in both the Jewish and Christian Bibles. You know, I think it's a lot more of a stretch to make a a Jewy argument about Kirk or McCoy. But maybe there's something to Amanda. So of the modern portrayals of Amanda, uh, Amanda Grayson, Spock's mother, two of them have been been Jews, uh, Winona Ryder in Star Trek 2009, and then in in Discovery, Toronto's own Mia Kirshner. A while ago, we talked about how, you know, novels and comics are sort of on the fringe of the Star Trek canon and, and not really considered canonical by a lot of fans. But there is an old novel called Strangers in the Sky, um, one that's really been retconned out because it shows a very different version of First Contact with the Vulcans that that doesn't line up with the film First Contact that wouldn't come out for many years later. And in that, Amanda has Jewish ancestors who are characters like a time travel element. And Amanda does have a certain spirituality to her. I think of her meeting Michael Burnham for the first time and giving her this sort of blessing. So like, maybe there's something there. What do you think? I don't know. I feel like... I think he is just the general outsider. Um, and I, I think that the fact that it's Leonard Nimoy and he is just so Jewish really is what makes 
Spock seem so Jewish. I think that maybe if it were someone else, like a different actor, I don't know if you'd feel the same way. Mm-hmm. Or like you'd have that like instinct to feel that Spock is Jewish. Hey, interesting note, all of the Vulcans who appear in the original series are played by Jews. All of the Vulcans with um with like names and speaking parts. Vulcans in general can kind of almost pass as human, like they have pointy ears and that's like obviously different, but Spock can um, manage on Earth if he wears a hat and says he got pulled into a rice picker. Exactly. Like, he just has to wear a hat and, like, do you remember Tuvok wore that, like, wrap around his ears and that, um, I don't remember which episode, but it's the one with Sarah Silverman. And I, I do s- sort of connect with that as, um, as a white Jew who uh, benefits from white privilege and passes as white. Um, and I am white. Um but uh, to white supremacists, I'm I'm definitely not seen that way, and uh, so I just I find that interesting. Hmm. Yeah. I I can't quite put my finger on why it is that all of them in the original series are played by Jews. So it's like Spock and Sarek, T'Pau, and then T'Pring, and I I forget his name, but T'Pring's like like lover. Think are all of the Vulcan speaking parts, and and they're all played by Jews. Um, hmm. And I couldn't find any other species in Trek in a particular series where they're all played by Jews. Although, unfortunately, the Ferengi in Deep Space Nine come really close to that. And and more on yeah, that next month. Yeah, I, uh, I don't like to think about that so much. Uh, but <laughs> yes. Chava. Yeah. Did you find an Afikoman? I found like an anti-Afikoman. An anti-Afikoman. Yeah, so it's like an Afikoman, but it's like I noticed how it's opposite of Jew. Okay. To me, I found it kind of strange that the Ponfar is so physical. um, And like it involves like an actual physical fight because uh, it's not like something that is considered a righteous thing to do in Judaism. Uh, Like we were just talking about being a Chacham, that's like supposed to be the best way to go about life is to try and be learned. And so I kind of thought that that was just the opposite exactly of how uh, you would imagine that a Jewish mating battle would go. Um, And it's kind of interesting because you'd think that like Vulcans would have it sort of similar, uh, a similar type of mating battle like a logic off or like a a logic battle um (laughs) and i could totally see that being something that we're in part of jewish culture quick what's depletahath's third law exactly yeah and i can that kind of does exist a little bit is like who is more learned is is definitely something that's super important when considering a a match so i thought that was kind of anti-jewish and that was my afikoman i just was like this is so opposite of exactly what Jews would do and it's weird because you'd think it's it's also opposite of what Vulcans would do and I guess that's the point but yeah what's your afikoman Josh My afikoman is when Spock lifts up his hand and makes the Vulcan salute in the sign of the Hebrew letter Shin In 1998 two men entered a small Jewish cemetery in southwestern Ontario and toppled 45 headstones including my grandfather's I was 9 years old and it was the first time in my life that I felt anti-semitism had reached me personally Months later the community came together in a ceremony of healing to unveil new grave markers My grandfather was a Kohen, and like many Kohenim, his headstone depicted two hands making the sign of the letter Shin, performing the priestly blessing. 
but looking at the stones as a nine-year-old, all I wanted to know was how my Zeta could be connected to Spock. Leonard penned two autobiographies, I am not Spock and I am Spock. Both statements are true. Leonard's Yiddishkeit is inseparable from Spock and thus inseparable from all Trek. Leonard was never without emotion, though. He spoke often of his love for his family. He was a man devoted to art, a poet, a photographer, and an actor and director of stage and screen. But in truth, wasn't Spock the character also a man of art and a man of love? It was in Spock's quest for Logos that we ultimately found his pathos. Israel literally means to struggle with God. For 50 years, we watched Leonard masterfully depict Spock struggling with the closest thing to the divine that he could comprehend, logic and emotion. I can think of nothing more Jewish. The words that Leonard would have learned in that Boston synagogue when he was first entranced by the sign of the letter Shin are the words of the priestly blessing. They are words as old as the Jewish people. Two silver scrolls dating to the time of the first temple, now housed in the Israel Museum, are the oldest biblical text known to be in existence. The scrolls contain this blessing. They are the words that the Jewish tradition relates were used by Aaron to bless the Jewish people as they wandered in the desert. They are the words that my grandfather would recite on Yom Kippur. They are the words that I use to bless my daughter every Friday night. Because of Leonard, they are words that are part of the tapestry of Trek. I said in the first episode of this show that my Jewishness and my Trekkiness are both interwoven into the foundation of my identity. Leonard Nimoy is at the nexus of these identities, and I miss him. May his memory be a blessing. That's beautiful, Josh. The culture that I came from has always been a very important part of me. And I'm very grateful for it. I'm very grateful to Boston because Boston was where I had that culture, that cultural rooting. And uh, it's been very meaningful to me to, to, uh, as a part of my life and as a part of who I am. I think it's been terribly important, meaningful part of my work. I was always thrilled, I always have been thrilled when I've been able to get in touch with some root element that came from Boston or my Yiddish or Jewish cultural life to to find its way into my work in some way. The Fiddler on the Roof was one example, but there have been others. I played Golda Meir's husband in, uh, in the television movie, A Woman Called Golda. And one of the great thrills of my life, acting with a couple of brilliant actresses, Judy Davis and Ingrid Bergman, playing Morris Meyerson, the husband, Goldmayer's husband. I was nominated for an Emmy. And uh, I produced and starred in a television movie called Never Forget, which was, was a, a great thrill for me to be able to get that done. I was very passionate about the story, a story about a man here in Southern California, Mel Mermelstein, who filed a suit against Holocaust deniers, people who were arguing that the Jews were never gassed by the Nazis, as Jews claimed. And he filed suit against them and won the lawsuit in Los Angeles Superior Court. So I was able to get that produced, that story told, I think an important story that the Holocaust, as a result of that case, the Holocaust entered into American jurisprudence, American law for the very first time in 1959, I think, or 16. I've forgotten the year. It's been some time since I did it. But it was many years after the war that it became a legal fact. The Holocaust became a legal fact. So being able to tap into my 
ancestry and my culture and my my Jewish experience to bring that into the work was a great blessing to me to, to be able to to find my way in, into that that uh, cohesion that collection of ideas and experiences and values. That's it for Star Trek and the Jews. Your Hebrew school homework for next month is the Next Generation episode, The Last Outpost, and the Deep Space Nine episodes, Family Business, Bar Association, and The Magnificent Ferengi. The interview with Leonard Nimoy was recorded as a part of the Yiddish Book Center's Wexler Oral History Project. Thank you to the Yiddish Book Center and to Krista Whitney. The entire two-hour interview with Nimoy is available at yiddishbookcenter.org. Our opening fanfare is arranged by Dr. Adam Snyderman. Our end credits are Desert of the Lost Souls by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and licensed under Creative Commons. The recording of Birkat Kohanim was intoned by Rabbi Elio Toaf of Blessed Memory, the Chief Rabbi Emeritus of the Jewish Community of Rome, and accompanied by Cora Hakol, courtesy of Torah IT, the Italian Jewish Archive. We'll see you next month. Thanks for listening.